Readers, listeners, welcome back. This is part two of my three-part lecture on Michelle Zahner's really impressive and moving Crying in H Mart. Uh, today, we're gonna dive in by talking about how deftly Zahner uses the, the different elements of the memoir. So when we're talking about fiction, I often find myself, um, you know, sort of impressed by uses of meta fiction. So meta, for those of you who aren't super familiar with the term, is simply the idea of um, something that's sort of referring to itself. So in terms of fiction, meta fiction would be like one of those stories where, you know, it turns out at the end that the person has been, you know, the main character has been writing the book that you're holding in your hands, that sort of thing. Um, in memoir, you can be a bit more sort of upfront about the idea that you are writing a memoir and that you are writing a book because the first person narration and, and this idea of like putting pen to paper is totally acknowledged by the fact that it is a memoir. So um, she, Michelle Zahner throughout is very sort of clear at different points about the point of what it is that she's doing. There were two different points where I found the meta part of it being very sort of helpful because it, it wasn't some sort of cute little gimmicky thing. It was like a, um, it, you know, it was doing more work than just saying like, hey, I was putting pen to paper. So on page 10, she says, in the H Mart food court, I find myself again searching for the first chapter of the story I want to tell about my mother. So I like the fact that it's, uh, it's present tense. She said, I find myself again searching for the first chapter of the story I want to tell. It's page 10. We're relatively early in the book. And so you get this sense of, um, of, of the immediacy of her grief and of her sorrow. You also know that she's in the H Mart because she told us in the very first line. Um, you know, she goes there to grieve after the death of her mother. But when she's talking about sort of, um, you know, the process of sobbing in these grocery stores and trying to figure out the story she wants to tell about her mother, there is a sense of like, there are a multitude of stories that we could tell about anyone. And in this case, there is the sense of her, um, you know, wanting to select it from, from many, many stories, which I really like because I think there's an honesty there. What is the story I want to tell about my mother? And we're going to get into this a little later, but I really appreciated the fact that um, for a long time in the beginning, you know, maybe even the first hundred pages, first 70 pages of the book, it really felt like an idealized relationship. And as someone who had a really great but often complicated relationship with her mother, um, which I think a lot of us have complicated relationships with our mother, it was such a relief to realize, in fact, that Michelle Zahner, uh, you know, had a complicated relationship with her mother as well. So um, I love rereading. I mean, that, if you want to get better at reading, man, that is the way to do it. So uh, I love rereading and it's really rewarding to reread something very quickly or at least to go back and analyze it in the form of these lectures because you, you miss the subtlety of something like that. Like she's in the very beginning on page 10 even, she's saying, the story that I want to tell about my mother, it's very difficult to figure out which to tell. And so we get this idealized story for a bit, and then we get a sense of, of some of the complications. So it, it's really nice to know that, that that's already sort of underway at the beginning. Um, on page 99, once her mother is sick, 
she talks about herself as the resident recorder. And at that point, she's recording all of the food that her mother's eating because she's, you know, the, the book is very much preoccupied with food and the idea of food as being the way that the mother and daughter connect. But food also becomes very important because it's literally, you know, her mother's sustenance. It is what is sustaining her mother. So um, you you have this sense of, of her writing down all of the food. But when she calls herself the resident recorder and she talks every once in a while about her sort of urge to, 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 to memorialize things in art, um, you, you get a sense that she was probably taking notes as she was going on in terms of caretaking for her mother. And it allows us to kind of relax a little bit into the details of the story because you get a sense that she's someone who like probably journals or something or at a minimum you know she's making notes i shouldn't say journals like that I, that sounded so bitchy it sounded like i'm <laughs> really judgmental of people who journal you should definitely journal i wish i were a journaler i have tried it's a no can do for me but i think this idea of michelle as a uh, a resident recorder gives her a little sense of, um, it gives a sense of, of uh, um, authority and a sense of, of details that can be trusted. So on page 118, we have an example of her doing this kind of meta stuff, talking about the process of writing, but it also is doing, this, this is an example of when it's doing a lot more work than just reminding us of the fact that she is creating the thing that we are holding in our hands. Um, and, you know, the bigger picture there, the bigger sort of so what about that is because th this is an expression of her grief. It's how she's processing grief. And this idea of modeling this, this vulnerability and this expression of grief is very inspirational for readers. So the meta stuff is not just a gimmicky cute thing. It's because she's reminding us of how cathartic it can be to express your sorrow. So, but on page 118 here, this comes just after they have decided to go on the uh, the adventure with her mother back to Korea to have sort of a, um, a last hurrah, as you will. So Michelle says to her parents, maybe I can film it all on my camera. I can make a documentary or something of our time there, I said. It was my instinct to document, to co-opt something so vulnerable and personal and tragic for a creative artifact. I realized it as soon as I said it aloud and became disgusted with myself. Shame blossomed and thrust me out of the dream she'd painted and reality came rushing back with nauseating clarity. So this is so good because we, we have at, at, at the beginning, you know, we have this idea of her as a veteran, you know, creative person who wants to take this vulnerable thing and make it into an artifact. And as the reader, you're like, oh, that sounds good. This is like, you know, I'm we're building trust that, you know, maybe she did a lot of videoing and that's how we're going to trust in the details. But then just as she is realizing kind of her misstep and the way that it seems opportunistic to be making a documentary of her mother's last weeks, what we presume will be her last weeks, just when she's discovering it, you as the reader are also like, ooh, ouch, like that is not what you want to be saying. So it's a beautiful um, sort of unfolding. And, and we as a reader are right there with her experiencing her emotion, which is exactly what you want to be able to do in memoir or fiction for that matter. So then um, she was disgusted with herself, which I, I love. Strong verbs are, are the key to really great writing. And disgusted is just such a good, it's such a good word for what it is. 
shame blossomed. So that was a little, I liked that too. Like I, I could see that happening, but then um, we have this kind of mixed metaphor that happens and thrust me out of the dream she'd painted. So <clears throat> you all know that I'm, I have very high standards for figurative language and a lot of her figurative language is very good. So figurative language is simply stuff that is saying something other than than what the words on the page are actually saying. So, you know, it's simile, it's metaphor, it's personification, it is, um, you know, symbolism. It's, it's all of those things you learned in sophomore English. So in this case, shame is blossoming, that's great. And then it thrust her, which I was a little like, wait, what? How is the blossoming shame thrusting you anywhere? And then um, into the dream she'd painted. So then we have the idea of a dream. And then we also have an idea of this painting. Um, I mean, I guess you could talk about that as reinforcing the idea of creative artifact. But for me, it was like this succession of, of different things, uh, different sort of similes and, and um, comparisons that, that were a little bit far afield and a little too uh, mixed. This is a bit of a mixed metaphor here. Uh, but I love how she ended it. She really saved it at the end for me here. She says, reality came rushing back with nauseating clarity. So I love the idea of nauseating because there is so much, uh, I mean, everyone has been nauseous. Everyone understands how awful it feels to be nauseated. And I think it's one of the things about her mother's experience with cancer that really comes to the fore. There are a lot of detailed descriptions that are incredible about um, you know, about her mom defecating and about vomiting and about just the body. I mean, that description of her trying to fit her mother into her, her mother's dead body into the clothing is so vivid and so deeply affecting because she's not pulling any punches. She really is, is sharing with us her pain uh, and the difficulties that she faced. So I mentioned earlier that one of the things that uh, that I think Zahner does very well is this notion of telling. So she does an excellent job of showing. I think there's a very good balance of the two. And I wanna just talk, um, just give you a couple of examples of the kind of telling that I think has every place in memoir and is really, really well done here. Okay, so if we're gonna look at page four, these are brief little snippets. Um, this is right underneath that excellent, um, uh, second paragraph that we looked at in session one. So she has this great topic sentence that follows that says, growing up in America with a Caucasian father and a Korean mother, I relied on my mom for access to our Korean heritage. So I think that you could say that this is like a little too like hitting you over the head. It's a little too on the nose, but um, wow, to mix my own metaphors, that is, that was sloppy. Um, but you have this sense of, of her as being really straightforward. And I think it might feel a little heavy handed if she didn't balance it with so much good, uh, so much good showing. And I think that it's a mistake of, of, you know, earlier sort of younger writers who are a little less skilled it, it, to, to sort of avoid all telling and to try to put everything into, I mean, again, don't get me started on bad figurative language, but, uh, but there is a sense of like needing to show everything. But I think the telling here is very well done. On page nine, she says about the H Mart, um, we're down kind of at the bottom, beginning of the last paragraph on page nine. It's a beautiful, holy place, a cafeteria full of people from all over the world who have been displaced in a foreign country 
each with a different history. So again, it's so cool to go back and look at this very early page in the book where she's talking about this holy place. And we do find out that she is, um, you know, relatively atheistic. I think that's a fair thing to say. And she has a lot of misgivings about um, religion. Her mother is not uh, buying into the Christianity that ties a lot of the Korean community together. And here, so you have this kind of substitution here really early on that you may not have uh, been kind of hip to just because you hadn't been sensitized to her religious thoughts about how the H Mart is sort of their church. This is their beautiful, holy place. And then I love how it all deflates with a cafeteria. So there is a sense um, of really owning, you know, she talks about her parents never having gone to college and she talks about them not, you know, being able to instruct her culturally. And she talks a lot about, um, you know, drinking beer and eating fried chicken with her, with her, um, with her aunts. So there is a sense of, it's not, it's not really too classist. Like it's not that she's really reveling in this idea of, of, um, you know, being sort of working class. Although, you know, the dad with the dirt bike and they're just, there's some really salient details that I think allow us to feel a certain amount of pride for her work ethic and for her kind of, I mean, for lack of a better phrase, like her, kind of her humble beginnings, she ends up really, um, you know, having a lot of what we would define as success. Um, I mean, and I, when I say we, I mean like ugly Americans, that kind of thing. Um, so you have this sense of her telling you at the beginning, not just what the H Mart is, but also, uh, you know, she's telling us a bit about her uh, attitudes toward religion and how very, very important it was to have all of those cultures being accepted. It's not a Korean market. It is this mixture of all of these displaced people that is so uh, important to her. On page 70, we have a description up at the top of the page here. Um, and this is another example of this excellent telling. I tried to see myself, this is when she's preparing to go home. I tried to see myself through my mother's shrewd eye, pinpoint the parts of me she'd pick apart. I wanted to impress her, to demonstrate how much I'd grown and how I could thrive without her. I wanted to return an adult. So again, this is like a very telling, like she's telling, not just showing, but it's so, again, it's doing so much work. So I love the idea of, um, you're really reinforcing, I mean, God, if my mom were like this, it'd be such a bummer. But this idea of, you know, not a not a piece of lint and not any, you know, nothing sort of out of line. Um, but she's talking about, um, she wants to pinpoint the parts she'd pick apart. I can barely say that. Um, there is that sense of someone picking at you, that, that, that repetition of that plosive, that P sound. There's this idea of sort of picking, picking, picking um, that, that's really kind of underscoring the scrutiny that her mom is about to, um, you know, to, to, to wield. And there's also this idea of um, like her wanting to come back an adult because the, the, the entire book is about her having to become an adult. So, um, you know, a lot of sort of definitions of a successful novel or that you are a successful any piece of writing is that you see some change in the principal character. And so this idea of her going from being kind of a bratty 
kid to being an adult who is not only independent, but who's also capable of being in loving, supporting relationships. That's kind of the arc that you would want to see. And you, of course, would want, in this case, her mother's death to be the catalyst for that kind of growth. So she's laying out here what the sort of goal is. And in lots of ways, I think that makes it more satisfying because she's very aware of, of this transition that she is uh, undergoing. Okay, and then we're gonna look quickly at 169 at another. Um, this is a very sweet example of this kind of telling thing. And, and I think that um, in this case, this is again on 169, the, the, the telling is very handy here because it's really revealing something about her mother. And her mother is not someone who, um, you know, because it's not, it's not a first person story told by her mother, everything is obviously filtered through Michelle's eyes. And in this case, when the mother is speaking, we have kind of this sense of her. So up, up at the top here, she says, you know what I realized, the mom, you know what I've realized? I've just never met someone like you, which is so funny. I mean, there's, there's a cute kind of quirkiness there. There's a sort of like sense of humor and a quippiness, but there's also a sense of, of, of distance between the two of them and a sense of kind of wonder and a sense of like, um, like non-recognition here that is both very sweet and very sort of intimacy building, but it also does speak to this kind of distance between them. And then it, for Michelle, this is this really beautiful epiphany that she shares with us and, and, and sort of just tells us uh, what it's feeling like. In the middle of that last paragraph on 169, my mother had struggled to understand me just as I struggled to understand her. Thrown as we were on opposite sides of a fault line, generational, cultural, linguistic, we wandered lost without a reference point, each of us unintelligible to the other's expectations. So this is exactly that kind of um, revelation that you have. I mean, this is a revelation I did not have until I was a little older than poor Michelle at 25, that, that adults are just people, you know, they're not, they are not in fact like the authority figures and they aren't sort of, you know, they don't have this kind of um, magical quality of, of, you know, omnipotence or, or um, you know, whatever the, whatever the fantasy is, it, at some point you're sort of like, oh, hmm. So part of her reckoning with this idea of not having a mother anymore is, is, is realizing that her mother didn't understand her in many of the ways she didn't understand her mother. Again, that sort of chasm that is opening between them. Uh, okay, I wanna look at one example of when I felt like um, she was like a little bit too telly. Telly is my, I guess what I'm gonna call it. Um, it's a time when I think that she's, she's sort of reinforcing something by stating it when she did not need to. Um, there is an old sort of writing tip, an MFA thing that, it's really a good idea to, to omit the last sentence of every paragraph, essentially. And it's a very good idea to chop out the last paragraph of any chapter, that sort of thing, because especially younger writers, less experienced writers, will have the, the tendency to feel like the point has not quite been made. And, you know, like, is the reality on the page or do I need to, like, really spell it out? And spelling it out is just never, um, never a great idea. So on page uh, 104, kind of in the middle of the page here, this is the woman Kai who comes uh, from Georgia to stay with them and to take care of her mother. 
Kai had no children of her own and interacted with my father and me at arm's length. Her icy demeanor froze us over. So um, I actually liked the first part of that, the sentence, um, which is kind of the telling where she says she keeps us at arm's length, even though that is a, um, do you know that comes from falconry? It's a, like a Shakespearean thing about falconry, like keeping your your really vicious hawk at arm's length. Um, but her icy demeanor froze us over. I mean, that we did not need that. We did not, I, I would argue. Um, it's also like a little too much. Like it's this metaphor about this icy demeanor and then freezing us over. It's, um, this is a good example of that adage about needing to murder your darlings. If Michelle's honor was thinking this was really clever, um, that's just the kiss of death. I don't know what she thought. Maybe she didn't give this a second thought. But I think this is an example of, again, like her telling is being kind of, it's already maybe too much. And then you add on this this kind of overwrought metaphor and it's definitely, definitely too much. Uh, okay, so the one um, last thing I want to talk about in terms of these, uh, the, the sort of um, like the conventions of memoir, in this case, the idea of being able to tell, just to be able to frankly just state things, uh, is this idea of, I when I'm reading memoir, I really love to, to see if there are instances of the person's subconscious. So like an, an instance of maybe an image or um, something where I have a sense that the author like doesn't quite like fully understand what we the reader are taking away in a good way meaning that it's it's something it's their subconscious that is that is writing something on the page and i'm not sure why i don't why i have a sense that they don't get it or that they don't that they're not aware it's not that they don't get it it's that maybe it doesn't feel quite so sort of finished or polished or thought through so um and and maybe maybe this is very clear to michelle which i i would not also be surprised at that to me, it felt like a subconscious kind of thing. So on page 70, we have this part here with their hilarious dog, Julia. Um, Julia, the golden retriever we'd had since I was 12, fell onto her back, paws up, submitting her giant stomach in a pose my mother always referred to as breasts up. While my mother grilled the, the galbi, I would always associate with the taste of home. Julia is getting fat, I said, running my hand over her protruding belly. You're feeding her too much. I only give her dog food and just a little bit of rice. She's a Korean dog. She loves her rice. So there's a couple of different things I want to touch on here. First of all, is this idea of Julia, um, this breasts up is so funny because um, I don't know if she's thinking of like tits up. Like I don't, I'm not exactly sure what, um, to me, it sounds like there's kind of a mistranslation there. But this idea of of the dog as a female dog, Julia, um, as being breasts up, there is this sense of, you know, whether or not, I don't know if Michelle's mom breastfed her, I don't know the Korean uh, thinking on that, but I don't, there's, there's a sense of, of Julia as being kind of this connector of the two of them. And, you know, we've got four dogs around here. I've always grown up with lots and lots of dogs around. And dogs are often a real conduit for conversation. They're a real sort of, um, you know, they're a, they're a circuit that we that we talk to each other through. And in this case, Julia, I think, becomes a stand-in for, for both the mother um, on the part of Michelle's honor and uh, for the daughter on the part of the mother, if that makes sense. She's sort of, at different times, Julia, I think, stands for both of them. I was really interested in the name Julia, and I looked it up. 
and I did a bunch of sleuthing. Some of my actually I'm fairly proud of this is some of my better um, literary sleuthing. So uh, Princess Julia was a woman who married one of the Korean princes. I can't remember where she's from, maybe somewhere in Europe. Um, she married him, but because she was not Korean, she was never uh, acknowledged. But in sort of early 20th century, if my recollection is correct, um, she she was like a very important figure because she was charming and everyone loved her, and yet she was also not accepted by the family. So I, I don't have any idea if that is why their name, I mean, why their dog is named Julia, but I really love it as a concept. I hope that they named her after the like shunned princess of the Korean prince. Um, okay, so, and then, and I love the fact too that it's this golden retriever and the mom, you know, it's just very, it's like that idea of looking like your dog, um, you know, this idea of this kind of floppy, goofy dog as being, um, you know, like sort of an alter ego for this mother who is very sort of, um, you know, always very well-kempt and very well pulled together and fancy and, you know, fancy clothing and, and um, you know, nice looking hair, that sort of thing. So. We're going to look on page 74 at another little peak of Julia. So this is when when she finally sort of breaks down about Michelle does about how sad she is about her mom. So her mom sits down on the couch. She sat back down and I slinked off the leather couch and sat on the rug between her and the coffee table. So that's already kind of this this sort of canine move, you know, this idea of slinking off the couch and, and being more comfortable on the floor. It's also the move of a little kid. You know, there's that that, you know, just there's something sort of childlike about um, about wanting to sit on the floor. It's very grounding. It's very safe. Um, Julia panted between us, her tongue lobbing over the missing canine my father had accidentally knocked out a few years ago driving golf balls off the driveway tee. Okay, a couple of things here. I kind of think she means to say lolling, her tongue lolling out of her mouth instead of her tongue lobbing, lobbing over the missing canine. Um, it's also funny, she says lobbing over, I think she means lolling over. Um, and presumably she's lolling over the other teeth where the space of the canine was, but it was, it was a little hard for me to envision like lolling over something that was missing. But then, so she is estranged from her father, Michelle Zahner, at least according to Wikipedia, which I mean, take that for, for whatever you would like, but she is estranged from, as far as I can tell, she's estranged from her father. And there is a bit of an allusion to that later. Um, there's a very cutting remark about him, you know, having moved, I think to Vietnam and, and being with young women who, you know, essentially have no idea what they're doing and they're, they're much younger and he's zipping around on motorcycles and, um, and just really sort of not respecting the mother's, um, memory. So, there's this real sense here of, of the violence of the father. I mean, he's if he's driving, if he's hitting the dog in the face, my first thought was that he, like on his backswing, he ran into the dog's mouth, which I, I mean, I think she's leaving that a little bit ambiguous there. And I, I like to think in reality that it was maybe the golf ball that hit poor Julia. Regardless, um, it's really speaks to her father who had alcohol abuse issues. Um, you know, it speaks to him as being someone who's unpredictable and violent and causing harm. So that's this kind of subconscious stuff. I don't think, um, well, I'm going to finish reading the section though. I hugged my mother's calves and leaned my head on her lap. I had expected our reunion to be emotional, but she seemed calm and unmoved. 
So there's this sense of, um, again, of distance between the two of them and, and, and the mom not quite being able to sort of, um, you know, meet her daughter in her grief. And so there is this sense of, of, of the, almost like, you know, Michelle is kind of relegated to the, the, like a, like a position of a dog who you wouldn't explain things to, and you wouldn't necessarily emote with. So that together with this kind of bubbling up anger about the violence of the father, I think is very compelling because I think what it is telling us, um, it is some of the stuff that's happening subconsciously for Michelle. We're going to just touch briefly on structure and we're going to touch very briefly on figurative language uh, and before we close this second section of uh, the three-part lecture on Michelle Zahner's incredible crying in H Mart. So the structure of the book is really deft and it allows uh, Zahner to do all sorts of things with time that is really interesting. So I'm not going to get too in the weeds on this, but in the beginning, obviously, we know that the mother has died and we have her sobbing in H Mart trying to figure out what she's going to write. And then we have her going back in time. There's a lot of movement back and forward in time, but never does the reader feel lost. So the temptation for uh, a lot of memoir is that you have someone in crisis at the beginning, someone having some sort of conflict, and then generally, you know, you'll go way back to childhood and then things will move straight forward in a chronological fashion. But it's really skillful, I think, the way that Zahner allows us to go back and forth in time. Part of it, she does begin with her childhood and we get a very good sense of some of the friction and some of the difficulties of, of living with a mother who was not a mommy mom, um, which is kind of that like adoring, um, you know, child-centric mom. Her mom is definitely not that person. Uh, and there's some really good stories that emphasize the ways in which her mother is very, um, you know, sort of strict in some ways and really how they're, the, the, the way that they showed each other affection and love was through food. Um, but then we, we move forward into time and we talk like not all the way till after the death, but we move forward in time to when her mother gets sick. And then we move back in time to when she's a high schooler and she has her breakdown and she you know, becomes a truant and she moves out of the house. So we have this kind of um, the, the through line after the very beginning is the mother's illness. And she does this very um, well organized, very well structured uh, construct where you have the mother's sickness as the through line. And then you have these kind of backstories that, that share with us the underpinnings of the relationship, whether we're going back to childhood or whether we're going back to adolescence. So it's really um, powerful the way that she is sort of weaving all of these things together. And in fact, it's very difficult to do it the way that she's choosing to do it with this kind of back and forth in time. So one of the things that it does also allow this structure with the mother um, and the sickness being at the forefront is we start with the diagnosis. And as we move along, I don't know about you, but there were a couple of different points where I had this sense. I mean, I'm also sometimes a really lazy reader, but I think it's when um, Kai arrives and there's this sense of relief because they're sort of like, oh, she's in good hands. And I had this sense of like, oh, good, like Kai's going to feed her. She's going to feel better. She's going to beat this thing. Like I, it, it allows you because chronologically she's, you know, walking you through the, the diagnosis and then the first, you know, days of the treatment. You have these different these different sort of moments of hope 
And it's very hard to do that because we've begun the book, of course, with her death. So it's it's the sign of a really excellent memoir if you are that lost in the text that you are feeling hopeful that there's gonna be a different outcome when in fact, you know what the outcome is. So I think it's a really, oh, th that passage we're gonna look at is on page 94. Let's go to 94. It's very quick. Um, so this was the, this was one of the times, there were a couple of them. Um, this is when Kai arrives and it's right before a space break here. She says, before the strength of an uni, like an ant figure, my mother could naturally surrender. Oh my gosh, though. No, okay, as I'm reading that now, the idea of surrendering, it, you know, it, it, I think could, you could also argue very uh, cogently that that means she's going to surrender to her illness more. For me, it was this idea like, oh, thank God, like there's an adult in the room who is not her sort of overwhelmed and overly sentimental father. And it's not this somewhat um, you know, self-absorbed early 20 year old adolescent. It's in fact, this woman who's really going to come in. So th but regardless of, of that little uh, phrase there, I think there is this sense of hope that keeps kind of popping up. And then you have to be reminded of the fact that this very vibrant woman at the center of all of the memories is in fact going to die. Okay. The last thing we're going to do for today is to look very quickly at some of the figurative language. Uh, as we've been going through, I've picked out a couple of metaphors that didn't quite work for me, but I think there are actually some that are excellent. So one of them is on page 107. Kai squinted at me like a smudge on a lens. So I liked that. Um, it's I'm very picky about, again, about figurative language. So any kind of metaphor or simile, the goal of these comparisons is to help the reader see something in a new light. And if it's too far afield, if it's too weird, it just pulls the reader right out of the stream of the text. It's like you're, you're thinking like, wait, what? What are we talking about? In this case, it, it's, um, it did pull me a little bit out just because it is a little weird and you have to kind of think through like, is she squinting? you're kind of like at the lens that's on her eye or, you know, there's a little bit of kind of, um, you know, adjustment that has to happen. But I do like how you can really see uh, the squint that she might have, uh, that she's trying to convey. Then um, this is, so another example of a, uh, a good, um, I guess this is a simile. Yes. Uh, no. Yes. This is a simile. Simile is just a metaphor using like or as. In this case, they, they come back from the hospital. Her mother is feeling better. They have a, a much better sense of what to look for. And she says, it felt like we'd thrown open a shade and the room was filled with new light. So I think what I like about that is shade, um, not only does it mean like a window shade, but it also, of course, means a ghost. So you have this idea of um, you've thrown open the shade and the room, uh, you know, th this sort of familial space in their house was filled with new light. And you have new and light together is really beautiful. And new is not necessary there. You know, you could just say the room was filled with light. But it's this idea of this new beginning and of light. Um, both of those things are about sort of renewal and hope. Uh, okay. And then this this one did not work for me as well. So this is during the, her mother's uh, memorial like uh, celebration. The pressure to perform and cater to others felt like holding in a sneeze. So it just didn't work for me. And, and part of it was because... Um, 
I think it was so specific and that that holding in a sneeze is so kind of urgent on some level that it's like you can't sustain it over like and and your face looks so weird when you're trying to do that that I was like wait I can't really see them at the at the celebration like looking physically like that the other thing I think it is is so Peter Mayle wrote this incredible book where did I come from which anyone out there who's you know 53 probably remembers and in fact if you go to the Fox page, I have a, um, a a little nostalgic walk back and a little a quick deep dive into the text because Peter Mayle is an incredible author. He's the one who wrote A Year in Provence, really talented guy. But he, um, when he's trying to describe what an orgasm is to a young child, he says it's sort of like uh, holding in a sneeze and then, and then sneezing, but a lot better. So, you know, this idea of holding in a sneeze for me is always sort of evocative of orgasm, which is totally not the direction that she was going in. Okay, and then I wanna look um, at two other examples and then we will close for today. One is a quick example on page 170 of how the house um, is a very important metaphor. So in literature, some of the tropes, you know, they're big, big tropes like, uh, a river, you know, should always stand for time and for death and for the idea that things are always changing, but they're always remaining the same. Any kind of apple, especially, I mean, any kind of tree, especially an apple tree or a pear tree or a fig tree, um, those should all indicate to you that the writer might be talking about Eden. In this case, she's talking about a house and any descriptions of houses are very important in books. And in this case, it is important because often the house will tell you everything you need to know about the state of a family, the family presumably that lives in it. So this is on page 170. After my mother's funeral, it was as if the house transformed and turned against us. What was once a comforting collection of her individual style was now a symbol of our collective failure. So it's this beautiful, we've got this nice parallel between comforting collection of her individual style and then collective failure. There's this kind of repetition of these words that are somewhat parallel, but are totally different. You know, there's this idea of her comforting um, presence and then our collective failure. It's, it's, it, it's a very stark opposition. And the house is so much hers. You know, it's so much the mother's that you can understand why being there would be very painful. And then the last thing I wanna look at is on page 223. This is an extended metaphor um, th that I think is very successful. And I think that um, unless you have very high standards and you're like very picky about your metaphors and your extended metaphors in particular, that it probably sounded great. To me, it felt a little bit calculated. So obviously the book has a lot to do with food. And in this case, what she's talking about here is fermentation. So um, it, it, it's, it's beautiful on some level, but I was a little bit like, whew, this is a tad convenient. It feels like something that was constructed just for the book. And anytime something feels like it's constructed just for the book, it's um, you know a bit of a problem. So in this quotation, she's talking about fermentation and how if, if something is carefully managed, uh, instead of just rotting that that thing, um, you know, it, it, it sort of becomes something valuable. I had thought fermentation was controlled death. So then she describes the process of making kimchi. So it is not quite controlled death because it enjoys a new life altogether. 
The memories I had stored, I could not let fester. The culture we had shared was active, effervescent in my gut and my genes, and I had to seize it, foster it so it did not die in me, so that I could pass it on someday. The lessons she imparted, the proof of her life lived on in me in my every move and deed. I was what she left behind. If I could not be with my mother, I would be her. Okay, the ending of that got a little heavy handed for me as someone who um, really was very, very close to her mother in some problematic ways. I think the idea of wanting to become your mother is, is highly problematic. So that for me capped off this kind of extended metaphor about fermentation as kind of like some kind of immortal uh, process that is, you know, at, 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 in some ways it's, it's at the sort of base, the foundation of a lot of Korean food. So it's an idea that has run through the whole book, which almost convinces me that she has kind of come by this honestly, but it felt a little overwrought. And then certainly this idea of, um, you know, her, her memories as being sort of in her gut and, and turning into her mother felt a bit, a bit heavy handed. So I do not want to end on a critical note because again, this is a book that I think is incredibly well done. And we're going to talk about many more of the ways that it is an, a really an incredible accomplishment in the third section. So tune in for section three of Michelle's honors crying in H Mart. <laughs>